0: Welcome to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast, where each week we bring you selected content from the magazine for your encouragement and edification. This week's first selection is an introduction to the life and work of William Childs Robinson, which appeared in the 604th issue of the Banner magazine, dated January 2014.
1: It may be the case that for some if not many of our readers the name of Dr. William Charles Robinson 1897 to 1982 is completely unknown. David B Calhoun, the author of the two-volume History of Princeton Theological Seminary and more recently our Southern Zion, Old Columbia Seminary 1828 to 1927, has sought to remedy our ignorance of Dr. Robinson by writing and editing a volume of The Good Doctor's Life and Writings. This volume, now available on both sides of the Atlantic, is entitled Pleading for a Reformation Vision, The Life and Selected Writings of William Charles Robinson. Below is the author's own introduction to Dr. Robinson, followed by a few quotations from the book and two notable tributes from O. Palmer Robertson and the late John H. Leith. William Charles Robinson was a minister in the Presbyterian Church in the United States, the Southern Presbyterian Church, from 1920. In 1926, he became a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, a post which he held until his death in 1982. Robinson's career spanned the Great Depression, the Two World Wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, These were difficult years for America, and for Protestant Christianity in America. Robinson saw his beloved Southern Presbyterian Church slowly move toward a more liberal theological position. He gave himself to preserving the old Calvinism that had marked the Church from its beginning in 1861, when Southern Presbyterians began their own separate denomination. His voice was heard in seminary classrooms, in pulpits across the South and beyond, and in the courts of the Southern Presbyterian Church, pleading for a Reformation vision based on faithfulness to Scripture and supported by the Reformation of the 16th century and its notable followers. Most of William Childs Robinson's life was spent as a teacher of seminarians. In 1948, James E. Moore, Pastor of Mount Washington Presbyterian Church in Baltimore, Maryland, wrote to young Morton Smith, who had asked him whether or not he should go to seminary. Moore gave three reasons why a person going into the Christian ministry should go to seminary. First, to study the Bible, which alone contains God's message of salvation for a lost world. Second, to study the entire Bible so that one is able to declare the whole counsel of God. Third, to learn how to convey the truth of the Bible to others. Moore wrote that he wanted Smith to be so prepared that he could go into any community and be able to present the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus to everyone, to all classes and all races of people. He could recommend no Southern Presbyterian Seminary because of the presence of liberal teachers in each of them. Instead, he suggested that Morton Smith consider Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, which, he said, fulfilled all the requirements of a seminary in a biblical scholarly way. Moore also deplored the lack of scholarship in the four Southern Presbyterian seminaries, adding that there was only one man who is a scholar of the first rank in those seminaries, William Charles Robinson at Columbia Theological Seminary. William Charles Robinson is not a recognised name among American Christians today, not even among those who would be glad to know about him. His books are seldom read. His struggle to preserve the historic Reformed orthodoxy of his denomination has been largely forgotten. Southern Presbyterian scholar John Leith has written, quote, In the years after World War II, Dr Robinson's influence waned. If the impression is correct that he is not given the credit in the church to which his career entitles him, it is a great pity, Leith believed, however, that it was likely that Robinson's work as a churchman and teacher of ministers was more lasting than can now be estimated. It is my prayer that this book will serve to further Dr. Leith's hope. William Charles Robinson had a lifelong connection with Columbia Theological Seminary. He was born into a Columbia, South Carolina family who worshipped at First Presbyterian Church, the mother church of the seminary. He was a student at Columbia Seminary from 1917 to 1920. After serving as a pastor in Pennsylvania, he returned to Columbia Seminary in 1926 as a member of the faculty and remained there until his retirement in 1967. In his 41 years as a seminary professor, he taught close to 1,500 students and his influence reached across the Southern Presbyterian Church and beyond. Dr. Robinson was a professor of church history and polity. He was also a theologian, a preacher and a pastor. Introducing his lectures at the Free Church College in Edinburgh in 1938, Robinson stated that he came, quote, as a believer to advocate the word of the cross as it is stated in the Holy Scriptures, as a student of church history to remind the hearer and reader of the testimony of the Christian centuries and confirmation of the word, and as a witness endeavoring to stand where the great Christian witnesses have stood and testified to him who loved us and delivered himself up for us, unquote. Dr. Robinson was indeed a believer, a student of church history, and a witness. This is abundantly evident in his life, his preaching and teaching, and in his writing. He powerfully and often eloquently combined Bible and personal faith, theology and church history, literature and pastoral concerns. In simple faith, the faith of a child, I beg you to make the death and resurrection of Christ, the ABCs of your Christian life. In all the depths of your devotion, build with these stones. Lay the foundation of your faith here. Build with these tried and precious stones and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. The question which an age ponders is a true index to the seriousness or the levity of that era and a valuable forecast of that which is to follow. Current American religious and philosophical thought is discussing the question, what do I think of God? Two centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards made our intellectual leadership aware of a deeper question. What does God think of me? And the Great Awakening followed. Modernism asks, how can I know that God is Luther's spirit agonised with this other query. How can I know that God is gracious to me? Liberalism's quandary wrought agnosticism. Luther's question wrought in the Reformation. Christ is the only and the indispensable answer. He is the bread from heaven for our hungry human hearts. For the Marxian communist, Christ is a drug, an opiate to lull the worker to sleep with dreams of a good time coming while others profit from his labours. For the Nazi, he is a poison to sap the strength of Nordic manhood. For the culture-religion of modern man, he is a cake which one may or may not order as a dessert after an otherwise adequate meal served by the Enlightenment. For the Christian believer, Jesus Christ is the bread, the staff of life. Occasionally, a student was bold enough to ask Dr. Robinson if he thought the Westminster Standards were perfect. He would reply, No, but their exposition of faith is better than yours, and you can improve yours by studying theirs. O' Palmer Robertson has said, William Charles Robinson was a key figure in the history of Presbyterianism in the South and in the whole country. When the struggle in the Southern Presbyterian Church was at its height, Dr. Robinson was right there. If you asked the founding fathers of the Presbyterian Church in America, they would all point to him as the stalwart of the faith in those critical days. Late Dr. John H. Leith has said, Dr. Robinson lived in the presence of the living God. He honoured his convictions against the pressures of the time and the lure of career ambitions. Even though his work was against the times, this very fact is perhaps the best reason for taking his work seriously. It is likely that his work as a churchman and teacher of ministers was more lasting than can now be estimated In any case, the final judgment, as he knew so well, belongs to God. Few of Robinson's critics have been able to match his brilliance, his diligent churchmanship and scholarship, his commitment to the faith and to participation in the organized life of the church.
0: Our second selection this week is from David B. Calhoun's book, Pleading for a Reformation Vision, The Life and Selected Writings of William Childs Robinson. The book was published by the Banner of Truth in 2013, and what you're about to hear is an excerpt from it on Justification by Faith, which was written by William Childs Robinson and published in The Presbyterian on the 12th of February, 1925. One of my college classmates said, in my hearing, Well, I have thought through the doctrine of justification by faith. It is the conviction of the writer that one cause for so much of our present loose theological thinking and for the diminution of the vitality and power of present Christianity is that too few of us have thought out just what this cardinal doctrine of the Reformation is. We have not the courage of our convictions, the transforming force in our lives, the faith that mocks the flames which the reformers had, because we have not felt the graciousness and blessedness of their doctrine of justification by faith. We have gotten in the habit of using this term as a phrase to conjure with, a shibboleth, a form of words, instead of taking the time to grasp its real meaning. And of all terms, This one, when used as a phrase only, is the one most capable of misinterpretation. This false interpretation can come either from loose thinking or lack of thinking, or from the studied effort to deceive. The English words justification by faith can be easily used to mean the direct opposite of the Reformation doctrine of justification. This is because of the indefiniteness of that preposition by. A speaker or writer can use that by as meaning by the power of, by the virtue of, by the grace of, as easily as another can use it to mean by means of or by the instrumentality of. Even historians of the Reformation, in discussing Luther's heart acceptance of the doctrine of justification by faith, show a woeful misapprehension of the meaning of the term. Many today are using the term justification by faith to express their belief that we are justified on the ground of faith, that is, that faith itself and our own faith is accepted by God as the ethical basis or meritorious ground on which he declares us righteous. Faith is taken to mean religious heroism. It is the seed of the new life which God is pleased to accept in place of the perfect life which formerly he demanded. Faith is made the basis of our judgment. According to this interpretation, the apostle of modernism says that God deals with a man not on the basis of what he has done or even what he is, but on the basis of the thing the man has set his heart upon, the direction of his life, the ideal which masters him. In accord with this interpretation, the eyes of men are turned in on themselves, toward the examination of their own faith. Be sure that you have faith in God like Jesus had. Scrutinize. Perfect your faith. Develop your faith. For your faith, as the sum of your hopes and ideals and vital principle and life direction, is to be the ground of your justification. This form of reasoning makes the basis and ground of our justification to inhere in us. It is our faith, as the sum of our hopes, etc., which is accepted by God as the equivalent of righteousness. We save ourselves if only we can get the right kind of faith, the right amount of it. Jesus' rebuke of this attitude, with the words, that if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can remove mountains, is forgotten. Furthermore, this meaning, read into the apostolic doctrine of justification by faith, is the opposite of what that term was used by the Reformers to mean. The real meaning of justification by faith, as that term was used by the Protestants in the Reformation, and the real meaning of that doctrine as expounded in Scripture and expressed in Protestant confessions, can be made clear by noticing the real biblical attitude of faith, the ethical basis of justification, and the graciousness of the entire process the biblical attitude of faith, negatively, is a denial that man by his works or anything in himself contributes to his justification. Justification is, to him that worketh not. That is, to him who does not want to work, does not intend to work, who acknowledges that he and his works are sinful and unrighteous. Faith, as Paul uses it, is the algebraic formula for not working. Negatively, it is the equivalent to saying that man contributes nothing to his justification. The attitude of justifying faith is seeking to be found in him, that is, Christ Jesus, not having one's own righteousness, which is of the law. It is a recognition that we are saved, not of ourselves and not of our works. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In himself every man stands guilty before God, and every atom of human sufficiency and pride and boasting is excluded. Merit lives from man to man, but not, O God, from man to thee. Positively, the attitude of justifying faith is magnifying God. It is God-centered. Dr. Gerhardus Voss, whose careful thought the writer has freely used in this discussion, defines the attitude of faith as the unlimited willingness to let God do all the saving, a recognition of divine monergism. The attitude of faith is not looking at itself as though it were a new virtue substituted for the old, but it is looking to the object of faith. Justifying faith is faith towards or into Jesus Christ. It is resting on Him as the limpet clings to the rock. It is being found in Him. Faith denies all hope and trust in the man himself or in the substance of the faith in itself and rests men on the unchanging grace and character of God. Faith is the attitude of giving all the glory to God. Again, as to the ethical basis of justification, the ground on account of which God declares a man righteous, Protestant justification by faith offers not itself. Our Westminster Confession of Faith for 300 years has been denying this modernist idea that God imputes faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to men as their righteousness. If we take the time to investigate justification according to the Aristotelian causes, it will save us many upsets. According to this analysis, faith is the instrumental cause, the means, the instrument, the human condition of justification. But faith is not the efficient cause, for that is the righteousness of God. It is not the material cause, for that is the obedience and suffering of Jesus Christ. It is not the formal cause, for that is the righteousness of another in distinction from one's own righteousness. It is not the final cause, which is the salvation of souls and the glory of God. Faith is taking Jesus Christ with the naked hand of the heart. Faith is the human condition, the receiving, but that which it receives is the meritorious ground of justification. And this ground or basis is the righteousness of God, which is built up of the material furnished by the entire humiliation of Christ, his satisfaction of the precepts and penalties of the law of God, by his human life, obedience, suffering, and death. Protestant faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness and Protestant justification by faith, is God, on the occasion of man's act of faith, imputing to that man Christ's obedience and satisfaction as his righteousness, and so receiving the believer as righteous in his sight. The saving virtue is not faith as a new virtue, but the virtues and sufferings of Christ, our substitute, Modernistic justification rests on what the believer is or aspires to be. Protestant justification rests on what Christ is and what he has done for the believer. Finally, justification by faith, as far as the sinner is concerned, is entirely gratuitous. We are justified freely by his grace. It is gratuitous because even faith, The instrumental cause is the free gift of God. Faith is our coming to Christ, but no man cometh save as the Father draws him. We only call Jesus Lord by the Holy Spirit. We come to recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but flesh and blood reveals it not unto us. That is done by the Father in heaven. We know the Son only as he willeth to reveal himself. It is given unto us to believe on him, and our total salvation, even with reference to faith, is the gift of God. Further, while the process of salvation has been so worked out by the wisdom of the Trinity that God is justified in that process, and it is just to Christ to accept as righteous those who are in him, nevertheless it is entirely gracious of God in relation to the sinner to justify him. God is declared just in his nature and government in justifying the ungodly by faith. But the whole plan of redemption is gracious as far as the sinner is concerned. It is pure, undeserved love that leads God to provide a saviour for sinful men. It is grace that provides the righteous one to work out in man's stead a righteousness for them. It is of his graciousness toward men that God the Son takes human nature and by years of humiliation and obedience and the depths of agony works out that robe of righteousness with which to clothe the sinner. It is gracious on the part of God the Father to willingly accept the righteousness of another in lieu of the righteousness which the sinner is unable to offer in himself. If justification as its basis be the man or his works— or his outlooks. It is of debt, not of grace. But with one accord, the scriptures proclaim a salvation that is of the Lord, and a justification by faith that is of grace, grace, grace to the utmost, grace to the unrighteous, whereby they are declared righteous in Christ, righteous as clothed in his spotless robes of righteousness. Now, as we cut away all centers or subsidiary centers of reliance on ourselves and our sinful hearts, and as we rest entirely and alone on the grace of God, and on the God of grace we place ourselves in faith's true attitude, we open our hearts for the streams of living water to flood our souls. As we see that we are saved entirely by the graciousness of God that we rest entirely on Jesus Christ and are accepted in toto for what He has done for us, the ocean of gratitude for this grace rises in a tidal wave that has real volume in lieu of the tiny intermittent rivulets of thanks that have been trickling from our hearts. As we deny self and rest alone on Jesus Christ, we realize the appropriate relationship in which close fellowship may exist. We draw really close to Him. We cling. Indeed, we hide in the riven rock. We seek to be crushed to His bosom and in the warmth and depth of living fellowship with the ever-present loving Redeemer. We begin to live His life and manifest the reality of His power, the blessedness of His grace. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.